everyone, welcome back to another episode of Strip by Sia, your podcast for strippers, sex workers, and all the fancy naked people in between. I am your host, Steph Sia, aka Kimchi on stage, but of course stages are not, uh, they're non-existent at the moment because they're still in lockdown here where I am in Canada, Vancouver, Canada to be specific. I am also a former sugar baby. I am also a digital content creator, which is mainly where you can find a lot of my work on OnlyFans uh, currently. And uh, yeah, I am the host of this show and I bring on different guests every single week that are in the sex work community or allies or people that contribute um, in a great way or make an impact to the sex works community. So this week we're doing things a little bit differently. I am bringing a guest on all the way from Montreal who goes by the name of Jen Clayman, who is part of the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Reform. And you may or may not have heard of this group before, but they are a rights group. They're advocating for sex worker uh, rights and the decriminalization of sex work here in Canada. So why I am bringing Jen on the show is because they had launched a recent, really, really recent about, well, I guess by the time that we air this, probably about two months now, um, a charter challenge. So, and what they're doing here is that they're challenging Bill C-36, which we have definitely discussed in some detail amongst a few of the episodes here about why that's problematic and why it needs to be decriminalized and why we need uh, more uh, advocacy for this type of work. So I thought I would bring Jen on, who I was connected with former guest Tamara O'Doherty from Simon Fraser University. Go listen back if you haven't listened to that episode yet. She's a great resource. But uh, Tamara so gratefully connected us together and I am so excited to finally get this conversation rolling. Jen, are you here? Are you there? I am. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Welcome to Strip by Sia. Welcome to the show. I am thrilled to have you here today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting us. You are so, so very welcome. Uh, Tamara had so many great things to say about you. And I was oh, like, yeah, she's like, oh, because I, I um, she came on the show and then I actually went to SFU. I studied criminology and gender studies and she was like, oh, if I'm coming on your show, you should definitely come and guest lecture at um, in my class, which I ended up doing um, just uh, last month in April. And at the end, once class finished, she's like, oh my gosh, I have so many great people to connect to you with. Can I please connect you to these people? And you're one of those fantastic humans that she was raving about. So yeah, we are now here. <laughs> That's the story, but I gave, I was rambling on a little bit there, but can you please tell the audience in your own words and in your own terms uh, what it is that you do and who you are? Um, So my name is Jen. Um, I, in the context of this interview, I'm here as the national coordinator for the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform. Um, I we are an alliance of 25 sex worker rights groups based across um, the country. Um, the majority of groups are run by enforcement workers, so people working in the sex industry. I, I, I'm based at one of our local member groups here in Montreal called Stella. I've been working mm-hmm. there for about 20 years now. Wow. Um, 
Yeah. That's so, incredible. And, and basically everything I do is, I mean, and, and have been doing since I've, I joined the sex worker rights movement is doing a lot of mobilization work and creating spaces for sex workers to um, get together, uh, to talk, to really shift the different powers um, that exist in different societies and making space for sex workers to build leadership mm -hmm. and to get involved in processes that impact on their lives. So the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform is one of those initiatives where wow. um, I could tell you a little bit about the alliance as well. I don't know if you want oh, just yeah. to just get into that. But, oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, well, the alliance was created in um, 2012. So that was in the middle of the Bedford case. Yes. And it was created as a means of getting sex workers' voices directly involved. Well, it, well, I mean, it was created during the Bedford case because we wanted to create a much more national and diverse voice around sex work law reform. Mm -hmm. But we came together mainly because across the country, different people were saying, and across the globe, but across the country, people were saying they wanted, sex workers wanted a decriminalization of the sex industry, but people would really define that differently and talk about it differently. And nobody had the same way of speaking about it. And so we thought it was really important in the context of Bedford and beyond um, to, to have a more um, shared and, and defined understanding of what decriminalization was. And so mm -hmm. essentially that's how we came together. That was the impetus to come together at the time. But the Alliance essentially was created as a means of building respect and legitimacy for sex workers' experiences where sex workers are otherwise ignored and not taken seriously. Right. But also as a mechanism to get sex workers directly involved mm -hmm. in policy and practice that impacts on our lives. So that's mainly what the purpose of the Alliance is, is to create that because all of the member groups across the country mm -hmm. um, based in each of the cities do so much work on the ground, direct services to sex workers all the time, right? different kinds of education, different kinds of, you know, medical services, different kinds of um, campaigns, a lot of direct service work. Uh, but together, what we do when we come together is the very small task. And I say small because it's a small piece of what we do. It's a big task. Yeah. But it's a small piece of our organizations. And that is our work around decriminalization and law reform. Right. So that's essentially who we are. Amazing. Amazing. And I'm just like, I, I was looking on the website um, earlier, a couple days ago too. And I definitely recognize a lot of the members that are part of the Alliance and for sure. we've definitely given a lot of shout outs to like Maggie's, they've been around forever, Swan, Vancouver, right where we are here in Vancouver, Butterfly, I definitely recognize like a lot of these groups. Yeah. There's so many other groups that I just wasn't aware of and I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's, there's sex, wherever there are sex workers, there's sex worker organizing, whether it's informal or formal mm -hmm. and what's nice about the Alliance is it really brings together so many different sex workers from all across the country and all different kinds of situations working mm -hmm. in different contexts. And it, it's very strong to be able to have a movement that is national in scope yeah. um, around law reform. Uh, it's hard to have a national movement because our geographical differences mean that our realities are so, so different. So different. Often yes. not, solutions aren't transferable necessarily. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to law reform and the general principles that underscore the reasons we need it, we find similarities across the country so that it's so we're very strong to come together and that's why we launched this challenge together yes um, oh my gosh it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of sex workers coming forward to say the same thing yeah absolutely and as you said like it really is coast to coast like again from here in Vancouver and I'm already seeing like all the way over to St. John's Newfoundland like it's just yeah. incredible and we're definitely yeah. gonna and get it, it gives, yeah sorry <laughs> oh sorry go ahead go ahead 
Oh, sorry. I was going to say that it gives people the incentive to to build things together. Um, mm-hmm. and, to, and the idea isn't to institutionalize our movements when we build groups. It's to actually ensure that we have more and more voices possible speaking yeah. um, and, and that we're representing more and more people. Um, sometimes people don't, it, you know, starting groups uh, can be really difficult, but our alliance is not made up of NGOs per se. It's made up of um, sex workers that come together and decide to call themselves a group, at least three or more sex workers. So some of those member groups are NGOs, Mm -hmm. uh, non-governmental organizations, and some of them are rights-based groups. Um, They're not necessarily funded. Um, Yeah, so it's it's a whole whole range of people. Right, yeah, which is, again, I think it's just incredible that we are able to just all come together over a, a unified cause and also to create a unified voice which I think is really really important here so that's it that's it yeah and as you mentioned earlier too giving the opportunity for sex workers to like fully participate because obviously like that that aspect is missing a lot (laughs) when it comes to policy making right so oftentimes like policy and lawmakers are not uh they don't have any direct experience typically or um any kind of real scope (laughs) on the work that we do (laughs) that's it and it's it's not it's not even so much that they don't have um experience it's that they think that they're in a position to speak to solutions and they don't recognize mm. that it, if, I mean, often sex workers are portrayed as, as people who don't have ideas or who aren't um, in their right mind, who couldn't possibly be um, making healthy choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sex workers' voices are often discounted and, and yes. strangely politicians are often called on to create solutions for things they don't know anything about. And so when we mm-hmm. talk about meaningful participation, um, we talk about placing the solutions and the realities of people at the center of those solutions right and people don't recognize what that means all the time because when you see certain people's incapable of speaking you don't necessarily consider that they can be important Um, (laughs) and so we just have to continuously do that education again and again to remind people that you wouldn't consult workers in other industries for solutions and so why not do the same with sex workers why not consult sex workers right well said well said (laughs) oh my gosh well this is just incredible Uh, again I'm just really thrilled that you're on the show today to be speaking yeah and again we are going to get into um the challenge uh later a little bit later on in the episode but yeah I mean speaking in the Canadian context because there is a large number of Canadian listeners, but there is a lot of American listeners here on the show as well, as well as like all over the Europe, Asia, like it's just, it's really a global audience here too. So, um, but I feel like the fight for decriminalization of sex work is, is definitely a global thing. And there are a lot of similarities that we would find here, but I guess speaking in the Canadian context, did, did you want to elaborate on why this is important? Because again, this can be related to other aspects of the world as well, which I think um, can be useful. So yeah, mm-hmm, for sure. get into it. I mean, decriminalization is part of a, um, is, is one of the goals as part of a global movement for sex workers' rights that is now over 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though the words that people use to describe sex work law reform across the globe might differ slightly, all across the globe, sex workers are asking, and in the global sex worker rights movement, are asking for um, a form of decriminalization, which is the removal of a criminal framework for sex work. Yes. Um, 
so that is something that all sex workers across the globe can understand is how important it is to not have sex work um, regulated and defined within a criminal framework but to be defined within a labor framework Mm -hmm. um, instead because people who are doing sex work doing it for whatever reason for money um, for drugs for Gucci purse habit whatever it is are doing so to to earn money yes Um, and, and, and that is the, the, the commonality, if there's any, across the globe. And so right. um, decriminalization is a, is a complicated concept, mm-hmm. and it's one that could mean many things. But I'll break it down for you in terms of at least how our alliance sees it. Sure. Um, in 2000, and I'm not going to go back too long, I know <laughs> it just launched in, but in 2015, yes. um, after this federal government was voted into power, mm-hmm. The federal, the liberal government, we found ourselves with a bit, with a bit of time, which is very strange as a social movement. But mm-hmm. um, the this government made very clear in their first year that they weren't going to refer, reform or, or follow through with any of their promised reforms of the PCPA, the current laws, the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act. Right. It was born as Bill C thirty six and then became the Act, which is PCPA. Yes. Um, so we learned in the first year that they had just fed us a bunch of lies and weren't really going to follow through on any of their promised reforms. And so we decided to do something that we very rarely have time to do in social movements, and that is to be proactive instead Mm -hmm. of reactive, which meant to do something that we needed to do but never had time to do. And so what we did was we undertook a year and a half consultation with our member groups to define what decriminalization meant mm-hmm. um, because different people in different parts of the industry were saying different things. Right. So we take a look at all of the different ways that sex workers are regulated and policed. Mm-hmm. So we started looking at a federal context, which are the criminal code laws, yeah. <laughs> yes. provisions within the criminal code. Um, and that was the PCPA. And we also looked at immigration provisions in the I- IRPR because there's an oh. immigration provision in there that um, prohibits migrant sex workers from working in the sex industry. Oh. Migrant sex workers don't have anything else specified in that except for the sex industry, interestingly. Really interesting. Yeah, so we that. looked at the, that framework and we and we all, you know, we talked about it over a long period of time and understood, okay, we tried to ask ourselves what parts of this need to change and we decided as an alliance um, and this was a difficult decision to come to but that we wanted to remove all of the criminal laws around sex work and the mm. criminal provision in the IRPR that prevented sex workers uh, migrant sex migrant. workers from working in the industry right what one of the contentious issues around that when we were defining decriminalization was do we want to remove the laws that criminalize under 18s by mm. and criminalize clients who purchase sexual services from under 18s and third parties who um earn a material benefit off of this selling of sexual services of under 18s. Right. And a lot of people in our alliance um, really felt very, very strongly that we had to remove those laws because mm-hmm. when they had worked as youth, um, the sex work laws were not protective for them. Right, um, yeah. And so and there's a whole other set of laws in the criminal code around confinement, sexual assault, mm-hmm. consent, um, battery there's there's a whole bunch of laws in the criminal code that members of our alliance were really confident that if applied could address all of the um, violences and abuses that sex workers may experience but that we don't need sex work laws to do that we don't and and not only do we not need sex work laws to do that but that sex work laws don't actually do that in fact if you look Mm -hmm. at the sex work laws in particular you'll see that they don't actually require any evidence of exploitation 
Right. Um, it just criminalizes certain things. So I would get into that after. But yes, please. So our first, yeah, yeah. Our first part of decriminalization was removing those federal laws in that piece of the IRPR. Okay. And then we looked at provincial regulations. And so we looked at occupational health and safety. We looked mm -hmm. at employment law. We looked at youth protection. And we looked at public health. And we decided it, within that, too, there was a lot of reforms that needed to happen so that sex workers would be protected at work, would have third parties that they work for who were responsible for their labor conditions, right. um, and a whole bunch of things. And then there was a third element that we looked at on more municipal levels, where we looked at um, policing and housing and education, um, things that um, happen on more local levels. And so our definition of decriminalization, when we sat down to think about it over that year and a half, was mm -hmm. extremely holistic and really comprehensive, okay. and really involved all of the different jurisdictions of government working together to ensure sex worker safety. So that's what our definition of decriminalization was. And we put that Great. together in a set of 54 recommendations that I'm happy to send to you. But yeah. we recognized for us, what was important was that decriminalization meant a removal of the criminal framework right. and of the immigration provisions. But we, the reason that those, I just want to specify, I know I'm talking a lot here, but. No, that's okay. The, the <laughs> it's, welcome. it's welcomed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. The reason we wanted to think through all of these things is because we know that decriminalization isn't a magic solution for all people working in the industry. And in right. fact, so many sex workers um, will continue to be, targeted and surveilled by law enforcement and criminalized by other laws yes. um you know the profiling um you know yes. cbsa um on migrant sex workers ass all the time um different municipal bylaw officers you know there's so many different ways that people in our communities are policed and surveilled and so mm -hmm. removing the criminal laws against sex work is one step yeah um, it's one to, aspect yeah and it's like one step to removing one of the tools in the police arsenal if you will, that they use um, to be able and to embolden them to target sex workers. But it by right. no means is it a final solution for Indigenous women who are surveilled all the time, right. um, for Black women who are profiled all the time, yes, for drug users-using sex workers who um, are constantly criminalized for drug for, for possession and whatnot. So yes. it, there's there's a so we recognize that, and so this for us. Um, when we talk about decriminalization, we talk about the removal of criminal laws against sex work as a first but very vital step mm -hmm. to ensuring sex workers' safety. Wow. So that could give you some insight into our definition of decriminal. It took us yeah. a while to come to that. Because, yeah. Yeah, because it was the details of it um, were really important to us in order to sort of just identify our shared values across the country. Right. Yeah. And that's definitely, it takes, it's a process to do that and obviously oh, takes yeah. some time. So I'm glad that you were able to come to, um, as you said, like a holistic uh, definition of what that encompasses and what that entails, which I think the definition was great and also very, very, very thorough too. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> very thorough. Very thorough. <laughs> Almost too thorough because when, par when we give it to parliamentarians, we have this, we have the, the, all of what I just said sort of outlined in the recommendations. Mm -hmm. and we have a summary of it and we have a longer version of it which is quite dense but it's almost too complicated for for and for members of parliament to understand because mm -hmm. they are still stuck within their moralistic framework that they can't actually uh, think just logically about how to take the steps to make decriminalization happen if you will right but we'll keep trying we keep yes. trying to get them to understand yeah <laughs> exactly i mean this is 
I mean, I, I can't wait to speak about um, the challenge itself because this is all like pretty recent too. And I remember like a lot of oh, yeah. um, media reports uh, coming out about that. And I think it came out just before I was about to guest lecture at SFU. And then Tam was like, did you hear about this? This is huge news. And, <laughs> and I was like, this is incredible. She's like, what are your thoughts on this? And I was curious just in terms, and we're going to get into the details of that later too. Um, but I was wondering maybe we can get or give the audience a little bit of a refresh um, on Bill C-36, just because, again, sure. there are some American listeners, like a large chunk of American listeners here, as well as Europeans and all over the globe. Um, just a quick refresh on what that is before we kind of go into uh, the details of the challenge and like why this is sure. so impactful yeah, and significant. I mean, the reason why Bill C-36, which was a bill when it was introduced, and once a bill is introduced into Parliament, it makes its way through Parliament and becomes then an act. So Mm -hmm. now it's PCEPA. But when Bill C-36 was introduced, the reason that might be of interest to your listeners across the globe is because it's an interesting story of what happens when you go through the courts mm-hmm. um, to uh, for, for, for sex work law reform, because um, what happened after Bedford, um, when the Supreme Court of Canada d- d- struck down three of Canada's major prostitution provisions, mm-hmm. um, the, the decision came with a one year, um, it, the decision is said to the government that they had one year to respond. Oh. And what the, what, the, what the Conservative government did in that time as a response was proposed this new bill, yes. Bill C-36. They didn't right. have to do that. They didn't have to create a new set of laws, but that's how they chose to respond because they have a very anti-prostitution perspective, uh, uh, position. Yes. So Bill C-36 was introduced right after Bedford. And the, 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 the thing about Bill C-36 is that it came at a time when the discussion, both legally and socially, was around sex workers' rights. And that was the first that had mm-hmm. happened in, in terms of the landscape of sex workers' rights in this country. People didn't think about sex workers as having rights in Bedford. Right. Um, highlighted and um, made visible this very basic fact yeah. that people working in the industry have, have rights. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bill C-36, um, when it was introduced, Bill C-36 made for the first time in Canada uh, sex work illegal. Right. Uh, sex work was not illegal before Bill C-36, but Bill C-36 made it illegal. Many people don't know that about Bill C-36 um, mm-hmm. and the current laws because the way that it was sold to the public was as a way to protect sex workers, yes. something that would help sex workers. And again, that happened because it came on the heels of Bedford and the conversation was about protection. Mm-hmm. But if you had followed the... Um, discussions around Bill C-36 and listen to the senators, they all made very clear that they actually didn't care. One senator in particular, Senator Plett, had said, I don't actually care about the safety of sex workers. I care about eradicating the industry. Oh, wow. And and that is the, if you read the preamble Mm -hmm. of the bill, and you won't find this in the actual criminal code, but if you go back to the bill itself in the preamble, Mm-hmm. which just which it basically it's like the introductory paragraph and it lays out the objectives of the law the objective is to end and eradicate the sex industry it's oh, not gosh. to protect sex workers right so so that's really important about the bill and i think it's an important lesson for people across the globe when working with legislatures is to really it's not just about this very broad concept of winning it's about um looking at what the intentions are behind bills and and what it proposes to do and and that's essentially the mandate that it gives to society 
-hmm. and to law enforcement. And since Bill C-36, which technically enshrined sex workers as victims because it defines all prostitution as exploitation. Right. Um, that's the, that's the um, legal approach. That's the surveillance approach. That, and that's the policy approach that has since been plaguing the lives of sex workers ever since. And so what right. Bill C-36 did was it made many new things illegal. Illegal, yes. But it, it also recriminalized, and this is really important, is that it, it still criminalizes the selling of sexual services in mm -hmm. public space. Right. So sex, this, there's this big myth that VLC 36 or PCPA decriminalized sex workers and criminalized clients, and that is an outright lie. Um, sex workers are directly criminalized through Section 213.11, okay. and that is the that it makes it illegal for sex workers to sell their sexual services in public. Right. It also became illegal to purchase sexual services or to even think about purchasing sexual services. Yes. You don't actually have to go through with purchasing. And it is illegal to do that in any context, anywhere. Mm -hmm. And then it became illegal. What they did too was they rewrote the third party laws, but they essentially just took the old ones and gave them a new framing or new packaging, I should say. And so it's still illegal to earn any money off of anybody's sexual services. And they also add in, added in something around advertising. Yes, so it's illegal yeah. to advertise. Now they did stick a little clause in there. The laws are intentionally confusing because they did stick a little clause in there that made sex workers immune from prosecution for advertising mm. as long as they were advertising their own sexual services and for um, earning a material benefit from their own sexual services. But it's still illegal to do it. And that's what's really important is that as long as any part of sex work is illegal or criminal, People who work in the sex industry organize their labor according to that reality. So whether or mm -hmm. not they <laughs> will get prosecuted, it's a part of it. But there are harms that go well beyond arrest and well right. beyond prosecution. Yes, um, that that come from criminalization. Whether you you know t you lose your children, whether you lose benefits, yes. whether you're able to have another job. Yeah, um, what the stigma and the discrimination that you live with. All of these things are really real impacts of criminalization, and so. If, as long as sex work remains illegal, that places sex workers in precarious positions. Right. So that's what Bill C-36 is and PCEPA. So the protection, even just the name, right? So the, yeah. the bill became the Protection of Communities and Exploited, exploited persons, persons Act. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so not only does it define workers as exploited persons, but it focuses on the protection of this notion of communities that doesn't include people working in the industry. Exactly. So it's protecting communities from the industry. Um, and that places sex workers very much outside of a social project um, and that becomes very dangerous for people yeah. working in the industry because of the isolation yes exactly and it just keeps like pushing sex workers down underground um, and as you said all the safety there is basically erased um, and eliminated so it is very problematic we've spoken about this on the episode quite a few times and thank you for that eloquent and super articulated <laughs> answer sure. Because uh, honestly, if you read through this, it's it can be really it's confusing. confusing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, but it's, it's, it's confusing. intentionally confusing, and I think right. that's important to remember is that um, legislators are in, and make things intentionally confusing so that people don't understand what exactly. their rights are. Yeah, um, and that and they to intentionally confuse the public about what the intentions of that whole bill was mm -hmm. um, as well because. Well, they're not stupid. No. Um, <laughs> that's it. But it's the same, it's the same laws dressed up in, in a new package. 
Um, yes. And that's why we're going back to court is because the same harms very much exist for sex workers. And um, yeah, nothing has changed. And if anything, it's just made it even more complicated because um, mm. people have, but most of society and even police and different people who are enforcing those policies are under the illusion that all of this is to protect workers. And so they do right. the same kind of raids of hotels, of businesses, of people's workspaces, but they're doing it in the name of protection. And so they think they're doing something. They think they're, you know, captain saviors um, <laughs> when in fact they're putting people in danger. Right. Exactly. And I mean, thank you for that the, the little brief um, refresh on uh, Bill thirty. 30- Bill C-36, because I think that's really important to highlight that just because um, for us to better understand why the Canadian Alliance uh, for Sex Work Reform is coming forward to um, present this constitutional challenge, I think it's um, important to kind of understand the backstory of it. So, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, And people take for granted, I think, when people very much take for granted what it means to be criminalized Mm -hmm. and what the impacts of criminalization are. Um, They don't necessarily think about what it means to have the threat of, or the actual physical presence of law enforcement in your life every day. And with whatever you do, whether you're sending your children to school and you're scared to pick them up at the end of the day, because the parents might know, or you're Mm -hmm. scared to be outed to your, or you're working as a teacher even, and you're scared to be fired. Yeah. Working at a bank or you have another straight job. Yes. Um, You know, whether you are are worried about um, whether you're paying taxes, but worried about being audited, even though you wouldn't have reason to be. Yeah. Um, I mean, whether, you know, there's so many different things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even getting housing, being kicked out of housing, mm-hmm. housing insecurity is a major issue for people working in the industry because landlords, if they find out you're working, whether it's from home or not, may um, discriminately um, evict you. kick you out. Yes. Yeah, and evict. Yeah, there's so many. I mean, and, and that's not even getting into what the what the um, impacts of, of criminalization on the street, um, mm-hmm. you know, police in your life every day when unwanted, unsolicited visits, right? Because there are exactly. moments where sex workers do want to access police, but yeah, the notion, people don't know what it means to be criminalized or to be involved or to be having to navigate criminality that way every day. And so right. you can't take for that for granted. And so, um, it's, it's not just a, a desire to not navigate criminality. It's the ability to actually exercise your human rights as a result. Exactly. I mean, I think this is a great um, way for us to segue right into uh, the specifics and the details um, of the challenge and how this came to be. Um, sure. Yeah. Would you mind elaborating? No, no, not at all. Please. <laughs> um, so it's been um, over five years now since... PCPA was implemented. It was implemented on December 6th, 2014. Mm -hmm. And the bill actually came with a stipulation that after five years, a parliamentary committee review the impacts of the law itself and its efficacy in you know, obtaining its mandate, which is to eradicate the sex industry. Um, The government has not started that study they did not start that review after five years um granted so they were meant to start it i guess in 2019 okay um that's when it should have happened and of course covid happened and so many things have happened but that's it's it's there's no reason there's a lot of other things that continue to happen Mm -hmm. um despite that so so it's been over five years and we haven't had that review 
despite that review, that review wasn't going to be the be all and end all of sex workers existence. We mm -hmm. know the impacts of those laws. Um, right. If the government needs to spend time documenting those, then that's great. But we don't want that review to happen at the expense of law reform. We think both can happen at the same time. Yes. Um, but but that review did not happen and things are getting increasingly worse. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of third party arrests, um, people that workers work with. Um, sometimes those people are actual workers. We can't wait anymore yeah. for, for, for government to act and engaging with government has been extremely futile. And so we decided to launch a constitutional challenge. So this is the first wow. constitutional challenge to these sex work laws. Now, yes. of course, there was Bedford to the older laws mm -hmm. and, and one before that, a reference case before that. But this is the first um, sex worker led uh, constitutional challenge to these sex work laws. Wow. Yeah, and we launched, we filed our notice at the end of March, and so it's a long process. It, yes. We're just now mounting the case and putting everything together with all of the evidence that we've managed to accumulate over mm -hmm. the past five years and even beforehand. But that's what's happening, and so we decided to launch it because we couldn't wait anymore, but yeah. we also decided to launch it because these laws are clearly reproductions of the old criminal regime, Yes. Um, and they have the same impact, if not additional harmful impacts mm -hmm. um, on the lives of sex workers and so th that's essentially why we're launching this yeah. yeah yeah definitely and honestly it's really exciting it's also really groundbreaking as well too as you had mentioned um and also think it's also a great time to do this i just feel like maybe i'm just now aware of it in the past few years but there are so many groups collectively um, organizing, I find, with in, in terms of like sex worker rights movements. And I think this is a great uh, way to showcase, you know, like we're actually serious. Like, come on, like we're humans, uh, I <laughs> you mean, know? Yeah, it's, well, it's complicated. I think, I mean, the charter, yeah, going to court um, and arguing for rights is a complex process for marginalized communities because mm -hmm. it takes a lot of resources and a lot of energy out of the community right. that could be used for very important things like taking care of communities right. and each other. And, and having to go back to court is not ideal. We would much, much, much rather that a member of parliament entered in a bill for sex for law reform for decriminalization and we can go from there and that's part of the reason we put together those recommendations that i was oh. talking to you about earlier yes. was essentially as a blueprint for some mp to come along and say okay i'm gonna submit this as a bill mm -hmm. and and we even put in some of that preamble with the whereas whereas language in the beginning yeah. of the recommendations so that an MP could just pick it up and, and, and put it put it together as a bill yes. um, because that would save us and the taxpayers. The people refer to these taxpayers as this, as, as, <laughs> but it would save all of us a lot of money, money and a lot up. of resources. Yeah, right. that, that are unnecessary. It's unnecessary for us to have to go back to court. And, yeah. Um, and it's, a, it's really a lot of work, and I think the government can just show some goodwill. When 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 PCPA was first introduced, or when Bill C-36 was first introduced anyways, and all throughout the hearings, um, the Green Party, the NDP Party, and the Liberal Party were actually very vocal about oh. um, being against the bill. They were very vocal that they not only did they contest the bill itself, but that they would they would promise to repeal the bill when it when when they were in government. Right. Um, they were very vocal about that, and they haven't done anything since yeah. that time. So, 
So, uh-huh. yeah, and I mean, the, the charter is one way that marginalized groups can fight for rights, but it's a mm-hmm. lot of work. It and of work. Um, our realities don't fit so neatly into legal arguments. Um, mm. It's very hard, you know, where, whereas with members of parliament, you're having these sort of very lofty, moralistic, you know, philosophical <laughs> conversations. Yes. In the courtroom, there, it's a lot more of a science, although, yeah. of course, public opinion and court opinion does make it, it does make its, its way, way in there. But exactly. But, but it doesn't, our, our lives don't fit so neatly within those charter arguments. And so we have to shape them to, to fit and so what we're hoping for through this charter challenge, so I, I could just sort of walk you through what it means. I don't know if everybody knows yes. what a charter challenge means. Yes, please define, because yeah, as I said, global audience. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I'll try to make this very simple. So sure. in, um, in this country, in so-called Canada, we have this thing called the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and that was introduced in 1982 or 84, I'm not sure which, in early 80s. Mm-hmm. The charter is part of... Canada's constitution and Canada's constitution is like the highest law of the land. Yes. So all of the laws that are created in Canada, whether it's family law or criminal law or employment law or Mm -hmm. environmental law, all of the laws that are created need to conform with Mm -hmm. the constitution and conform with the charter. Right. So if you have a law in, let's say, criminal law that contradicts one of the rights that's laid out in the charter, the law itself is thought to be unconstitutional. Right. So what we're arguing is that the prostitution laws in PCPA, the prostitution laws that were introduced through PCPA, pardon me, mm-hmm. that those laws contradict sex workers' charter rights. Not all of the charter rights. There's tons of charter rights. There's yes. Like, I want to say there's like 60, but I, don't, I haven't looked at the entire charter. It's an entirety for a long time. <laughs> but we're focusing specifically on three charter rights. Okay. Um, yeah, we're focusing specifically on Section 7, which is the right to life and liberty and security of the person. Right. We're focusing on Section 2A, which is around freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. We're focusing on Section 2D, which is around the freedom to associate. Yes. And we're focusing on Section 15, which is around equality. So Section 7, Section 2, and Section 15 are the rights that are in the Charter that we're arguing that prostitution laws contravene. Right. So... We basically what you do is you go to court and you demonstrate through evidence how sex workers charter rights to life, liberty and security, to equality, to freedom of expression, to freedom of association. How are those things contravened? And this is where we demonstrate the daily impacts of PCP on sex workers lives every day. The ways that these laws make it impossible to work with other people and why people need to work with other people for safety or how these laws make it impossible for sex workers to be able to have clear and consent clear and, and consensual communication with people they're selling services to and why these laws make it impossible to do so. Mm-hmm. So that's our job is to create is to demonstrate all of that, to provide evidence for that. Right. That's what a charter challenge is. There Does that go. make sense? Yes, that's perfect. That's a very succinct okay. answer. Take me back to my <laughs> Criminology 101 days. <laughs> a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's a I good mean, refresh. But, well, that's it. And I think it's important because, you know, this charter, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, for what it's worth and for what human rights documents are worth, doctrine, for what it's worth, I mean, they're only as valuable as as the, as the way we use them um, mm-hmm. so you can have a set of rights you know listed in a charter of, of a country but yeah it's just about how much the country decides 
those rights are important and valuable and how much we equip communities to be able to, to fight for those rights. And like I said, it's not easy for communities to come forward to no. do this. Yeah, exactly. Like, of the resources. People are living those realities every day. It's not that they can just pick up and leave their lives. No, no. Um, to, to go fight for their rights in a courtroom. And most people do not have access to being able to do that. And so yes. when groups are able to do that, it is quite a feat. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, 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 we, we try to make... We're trying to take advantage of the tools that have been provided for people, but it, but like I said, it's not it's a messy fit um, right. for, our, for our realities, and so there's other ways to do human rights work that might feel good, but the the only way to actually change law is to engage with the systems that make the laws, and that's yes. government, and that's the courts. Yes, um, and so we need to engage in that way as well. And when I started doing my activism 20 years ago, if you had told me that a large majority of my activism would be about engaging these institutions, I would have laughed in your face <laughs> because it is most definitely not where I like to put my energies. But after mm. many years of doing what I was doing, um, you know, it is one way of, of gaining recognition for the rights of people in, in the industry. And, right. and it's important. Um, but it, but on its own, it doesn't mean much without the social movement and the mobilizing and the strength of the community itself. Of course, of course. Yeah. So like, this is, this is huge. I mean, this, I think you mentioned this was launched March 30th. I, I think it was March 29th or March 30th. Yeah. Around yeah. there. And, yeah. Yeah. And Bedford took um, seven years to go through the courts. So wow. Expects, yeah. We, I mean, yeah. Oh my gosh. But, but you know what? Like I said, um, Steph, this could end at any point. If mm-hmm. somebody, if, if a member of parliament just decided that they cared enough mm-hmm. about this issue and about saving the money and the time and the resources, and if they cared about the lives of people working in the industry, they could just introduce a bill yeah. that that is decriminalization. They would have to introduce a bill at this stage that challenges, that, that recommends the removal of all of the laws that we're challenging, right. um, which is practically all of them or else we would just continue with our case forward because for us yeah. there's nothing less that we would accept mm-hmm. um, or that we're not going to argue for less rights. Um, of course, of course. Right? Yeah, no, no, <laughs> that's not what we want. <laughs> well, they need to understand what the what it means to be criminalized in all these ways. And so exactly. um, it doesn't need to take this long, but no. uh, this is this is a decision that the government is making. And so don't let them convince you that, that something else is going on because they've made the decision to not engage in this way. Right. And I mean, it would be nice if we can go that route, but if we are going to go through the court system and Bedford took seven years, like what is what is the process after this? So once you've, you've launched it at the end of March, you are now gathering right. evidence now for the case to present? Yeah. I mean, okay. most of the evidence itself is gathered yeah. already, um, but it's about putting it all together. So just to give you an idea, in Bedford, the record was 25,000 pages. Wow. Um, it, well, because there had been so much research yes. on the sex industry, and as much as people complain about how much, you know, workers will always, oh, more research, more research, more research. All mm-hmm. of that research documented the evidence of a lot of human rights violations that sex workers experience. And so there was over 25,000 pages of evidence. And so on our end, we need to put, we, we need to just mount the case, put together that evidence. And then we just sort of go back and forth with the Crown. They put together their evidence. We bring forward our witnesses. It's, it's uh, so I should mention that the, so the, the Alliance is the main applicant in this case. And there are also six individual applicants, five 
of whom are individual sex workers and one is a third party uh, who used to own an escort agency. So we're, together we're all of the applicants and so um, we're putting together all of the evidence from the applicants but also from the research that's been compiled. And so it just takes time for us to go back and forth within the court system. And then after that course it happens. So we launched the case in Ontario. That's where we filed the notice. Great. And so we're hoping that we make it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Yes, fingers crossed. <laughs> yes. And once that happens and the court determines that the laws are unconstitutional, I, we don't know what can happen. But off, often what happens is then it's back in the parliament's court for them to figure out next steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the Supreme Court decisions are meant to serve as instruction for parliament. But what we saw in the case of C-36 was a total, the, the parliament totally ignored, mm-hmm. government totally ignored um, the, the decision in that case. Right. So it's again why we really, it's again why we say we would much rather have sat down with members of parliament yeah. to actually craft something that makes sense for workers. Totally. Um, but we really tried to do that. It's not like we just sat around not doing that. We For the past five years, we've been engaging. We've had numerous meetings with the Minister of Justice Office, with the Minister of Women's Equality, oh, wow. uh, Minister of Wage, with, yeah, yeah, it, it justice, uh, it ju- even even the Prime Minister's office. We've had many meetings wow. with many people, and it, uh, to no avail. I mean, they just sort yeah. of puff smoke in our face, and that's about it. Yeah. So, oh gosh, yeah, so it's exhausting. It is very <laughs> so, exhausting. I, I so, feel it. So just to hopefully give us a bit of a respite and will allow us to build momentum in our community. I think one of the amazing things about fighting for rights and having those rights recognized through something like the courts is mm-hmm. it really gives communities a little bit of hope for even just yeah. a moment to see, okay, you know, people are recognizing that I have rights. It's a small, tiny thing, but Absolutely. it makes a difference. So, so yeah, so we were tired of engaging with parliament because they didn't do anything. And so yeah. we're really hoping that, uh, it would be nice for somebody to stop this process yes. by introducing a, new, a bill for decrim, but if not, then you just have to keep trucking on them in court. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's it. Wow. That's Incredible. I mean, I applaud the efforts that the Alliance is making. Again, it's just incredible. It's just a lot, so much, so much work, but so much good work. work. And I I guess I just want to sort of it's not just the alliance doing this work it's it's people like yourself it's people like mm-hmm. all of us together need to spend and will be spending the next five or ten however many years talking right. about this educating people about the work itself about yes. the realities of workers and that work it, it it takes an entire community to do that right so yes. your show like this podcast all the work you do as an activist mm-hmm. all the work that other workers do as activists is really really important over the next while um, yes. because that because there's a lot of pressure and we need to find moments in there to, for community to be able to take care as well and not to make our entire lives about this case, but to yeah. recognize that um, we need to stay strong in these moments. Too. Absolutely. And yeah. sometimes it just can be so hard, but like, again, like this is another reason why I do the show is just to kind of bring awareness and mm-hmm. to educate as much as I can, even though I'm just like one person. For me, I feel like this gives me a bit of purpose and also, as you said, like gives people in the community a little bit of hope, you know. That's right. So, and that to me is, I mean, it's not enough, but it's something. So. It absolutely is something. It <laughs> makes a very big difference. It's it's one of the sweetest things is, I, I mean, this, it's only been a couple months since we decided to launch as an alliance, mm-hmm. but it's very difficult 
I mean, very difficult, but it's exhausting just coming up against all these institutions all the time um, right. in this process, like institutions that, you know, they're, they're, their assumptions and their stereotypes and their, just people so don't really understand it. It's, it's, yes. it's just tiring, right? It and, is very tiring. Yeah. And, and, and coming up against all the, you know, presumptions that, that different institutions have and all the, the red tape and whatnot. And so, um, What's really nice is that, you know, different workers here and there have been sending really sweet emails to say thank mm-hmm. you or this means a lot. You know, it's not a perfect process. It's not mm-hmm. like the, um, you know, as I said, with when we define decriminalization, it's not an answer to everything. It's right. a small, it's a small piece of a bigger story. Yes. But it was, it's really nice to be receiving a little bit of love for people to say, thank you for putting in the effort. Thank you for caring about me and my working conditions. Yes. Um, and I, and, and that's meant a lot because that's really why we do this at the end of the day is for people in our communities and, uh, and for ourselves and, and for all of us together to sort of just release, release a little bit of pressure. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and we can only do that when we're strong as a community to do it together, right? Because this, this, it, this takes an entire community to do this kind of work. So absolutely. No. Well said. I mean, that's a great way to wrap up this portion of the show. Oh my gosh. So, Thank yeah. you. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bit overwhelmed. I, I feel like I'm going to have to really listen back to this episode and just sure. think about everything that you said here. Cause it's just so again, groundbreaking, but also, um, really important work that you're doing. So I guess um, there are a few questions that came in for you, for the Alliance. So I guess we can go into that section of the episode, if that's okay with you. For sure. That'd be great. I'd love to hear what kind of questions people have. I don't know if I can answer them, but I'll try my best. Yeah, we'll try your best. (laughs) Okay, Jen, we have the first one here. So are there any other countries that have been successful in challenging similar le- legislation or governing bodies that you know of? Sure, that's a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say which countries got to decriminalization because of a court case per se, mm-hmm. but I can tell you that there is one country at least that has oh. um, a decriminalization model that oh, okay. is the closest to what we would want it to look like in Canada, but it is not. it's not a... It's not the model that we would want in Canada, and I can explain why. Sure. So in 2003, New Zealand implemented yes. a, uh, had a bill, prostitution law reform bill. It was called, so it wasn't through court, but they mm-hmm. did, they worked with their parliament to create the prostitution reform bill. Okay. And um, they created a decriminalized industry, mm-hmm. um, which meant that there's the, that the that the work itself was not understood or regulated within a criminal framework. The reason that that model isn't a perfect model for us is one, because you can't take any legislative model and just take the bill and then dump it into another jurisdiction like Canada, because our right. governments are organized just very yeah, differently. differently. Yes. Well, yeah, in New Zealand, you know, here we have provinces, we have, you know, provincial governments, we have different jurisdictions for governments. And so it doesn't work the same way. Whereas in New Zealand, you have a federalist government. So, the, you know, right. you, you, they don't have those middle people necessarily to mm-hmm. regulate. So it, it doesn't work the exact same way. Mm-hmm. But the idea and the spirit of it is the same of what we're looking for. The, the things we don't like about that bill, um, which is something I alluded to earlier, um, is in the, New Zealand, in the New Zealand decriminalization model, migrant workers are still considered illegal. You can't work uh, if you're migrant in the industry. Right. And there's also um, something around condu- mandatory condom use, which is very bizarre because hmm. 
one of the things that, and people talk about this all the time and people say, oh, well, will they be forced to wear condoms? Will they be forced to wear, to pay taxes? People get very concerned about that. when you talk about um, respecting sex workers' rights because they're scared to not have that control anymore of all the things that they think prostitutes do. They run around spending everybody's tax money or not right. paying taxes or running around spreading STIs everywhere. Like there's all these stereotypes <laughs> yeah. that yes. get reinforced in these moments. But Definitely mandatory condom use is something that we don't want to have in our model because we don't know who would regulate that and how. And again, yeah. we don't want any special laws and yeah. in, our, in our recommendations. We're very clear. We do want regulation, but we want that regulation to make sense for the industry. We don't want it to be a, a special kind of extra surveillance or extra regulation because it's right. the sex industry. But the New Zealand model comes closest to what we're looking for. Okay. Um, and so that's what we refer to often as a decriminalized model. Good to know. Yeah, I'm going to have to look yeah. that up. I mean, New Zealand's sure. doing some great things too, but I'm going to have to research that after this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. For sure. For sure. Um, here's another one. Besides decriminalization, what else can we do to help sex workers? And I'm not sure if that is coming from a sex worker or if that's coming uh-huh. from a, like a civilian. So feel free to right, answer right, right. how you choose. <laughs> sure. Well, that's a great distinction you're making because obviously mm-hmm. there's different things that different people can do. Yes. But I think what's most important is, again, when I was when I was saying earlier that this case, won't, there are so many things that wouldn't change because of this case or that won't change because of just, you know, decriminalization, whether or not these laws are deemed unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that, again, many sex workers in our community will continue to be criminalized by other laws yes. um, because law enforcement targets our communities with every tool at their disposal. So the immigration provisions will continue to discriminate against migrant sex workers, and mm-hmm. that may lead to detention or arrest or deportation. Oh um, you know, sex workers who live and work in public space particularly black or indigenous trans sex workers or sex workers who use drugs will continue to be profiled by police will continue to experience criminalization so these removal of these laws is a very first step but we need to continue to fight to remove the section of the irpr that prevents migrant sex workers from Mm -hmm. working in the sex industry or we need to continue to fight for status for migrant workers we need to dismantle policing systems that surveil and profile and target indigenous and black sex workers and sex workers of color working yes. in public space. We need to educate and work on stigma and resulting discrimination. So we have to really make our fight holistic and we need allies to do that. The sex worker rights movement would be nowhere without the mm-hmm. help of, our, of allies. Um, and so we need people to continue to challenge those systems and, and to make those systems and ma- to make that struggle intersectional. And that's what people can do. Sex workers and allies alike can do yes. that. Oh. I think for allies too, allies can find out who your local sex worker rights project is and support them. You know, pour mm-hmm. money into them, pour energy into them. Don't necessarily, you, you might not necessarily pour your time into them because not everybody needs allies mm-hmm. um, time necessarily, particularly in a COVID context where there's right. less to do in an office type space right. or, or a location <laughs> type space. But, um, but, but, but support your local organization who's doing all this work because they have so many, there's so many workers on the ground that need that support. And by, by providing support to the organizations, you're providing support to the workers. That's a great response. Or give your money to workers, right? Just, I was telling you, just so give your so money good. to sex workers. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I've said that before too, like support your independent sex workers. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Well, independent or the ones working for third yep. parties, but just give, give the money to workers because COVID has really hit hard for it a lot of sure workers. Has. And 
Mm-hmm. This government has not taken into they. I mean, we we've we've been talking with them for months and months and months about this, but there were no income replacements for people who aren't able to uh, make themselves known with a social insurance number exactly. necessarily. So yeah, yeah, great. And there is just one last one here, one last question. So what has the response been from the community? So, and and, uh, the person did not state which community, (laughs) but you can answer to both. (laughs) I mean, I don't, from from our sex working community, I I alluded to a little bit earlier, there's been a a few emails coming in saying thank you. Yes. Um, I I will say that I think a lot of us are are just headed into this with a lot of trepidation. It's not... um, one of those moments where you're like, yay, we're so happy to do this. This right. makes so much sense. Um, <laughs> it's exhausting. And, and most of us doing this had just just came out of the C36 process. So it's mm-hmm. not as if um, we weren't already exhausted by that. And it's not as if we have hope around these systems uh, and these institutions. And so it's not it's not a very clean, positive experience. Right. But I think there's a general consensus that we're not going to stop fighting for decriminalization just because it's hard. Mm-hmm. We're not going to stop engaging these systems just because they treat us like garbage. But we need to just try and find the strength uh, for each other and try to build up the skills of, of, of new sex workers and, and the knowledge of new sex workers to be able to do this kind of work. Um, right. So generally, I think that people are, are happy that it's happening, but also mm-hmm. really angry that it has to. Yes, um, yes. Great point. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Great. Well, before I let you go, where can we find you? Or where oh, can we find yes. the Alliance? <laughs> yeah, you can find it. Yeah, that's what I figured you meant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, our website is www.sexworklawreform.com. That's one word. Perfect. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at CD. Oh, God. I know. It's, like, it's Canadian Alliance, but hold on, I'll tell you. I don't want to miss that. I know. Up. I have to like type it's, it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's. Um, sorry about that. It's C D N, like mm-hmm. short form for Canadian. Canadian. So C D N S W for sex work alliance. The word alliance. So C D N S W Alliance Perfect. is our Twitter handle and our handle for our Facebook, and you can follow us there. And if there's anything going on, any actions any direct action over the next five to 10 years, which of course there will be much of, (laughs) um, please follow and please join. Um, You can also, if you go to our website, sexworklawreform.com, you Mm -hmm. can download our recommendations and read about them, um, our recommendations for law reform. So you can see what decriminalization means to us. And when there's news, we usually put it up there too. Wonderful. And I'm going to include all of these links in the show notes. So if you haven't clicked already, open up your app or whatever listening device that you use or maybe use a laptop, feel free to click on those links, give it a read and uh, go tweet them, go talk to them on Facebook if you have any questions or concerns or inquiries or anything like that. And yeah, like it's just been an incredible hour of speaking with you, Jen. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge and just sharing with the world, it really is the world, about oh, yeah. What, yeah, what we're doing here up here in Canada. So Yeah, my pleasure, Steph. We're really grateful for the platform. Um, not, it's not always that people are interested in what happens in this country, so it's nice mm-hmm. to hear um, <laughs> that, that you have a wide audience for that. But um, I guess the last thing I'll say is when you go onto our website, just mm-hmm. check out our member groups um, yes. to look at all the amazing work that everybody's doing. Um, yes. You know, like I said, give your money to your member group in your local region. 
And if you're a worker and you're looking for a member group, it's a way to find other workers in your in your industry. Absolutely. And again, there's 25 groups there currently at the time of recording. Who knows if there's going to be more, but I mean, it's just incredible. Have a look and a click through there. I'll be posting the links in the show notes below. And it's new episodes every single Sunday. Uh, it's Stripped by Sia on Instagram, as well as my personal Sia Steph. And we'll catch everyone in for another episode next Sunday. Thanks, Jen. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're so welcome. Bye. 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 You're listening to Strip by Sia. Hosted, produced, and edited by Steph Sia. Artwork by Maria Bellandorama. Music by Ted D. And photography by Ian Dabern. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.